Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Season 2, Podcast Number 9. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge. Speaking as someone who played around with mercury from thermometers too much as a child, and likely knocked off a few IQ points that way, I can't say that I've ever been too concerned with residues in beef, not when there was seed treatment and herbicides on the farm, which were obviously immediately lethal. My co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, a principal scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Within your extensive research portfolio, Tim, I know that you've worked both with hormonal implants and antimicrobials, but is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to in our discussions today? Yeah, well, Kim, I think those are two key areas that we always hear people being concerned about whether we use hormonal implants, whether those hormones end up getting into the beef and what implications they could have on the environment as well if they move from the manure into aquatic ecosystems. And the same with the antimicrobials. There's a big program, Canada's Action Plan on Antimicrobial Resistance. So we're also got an interest as to whether the residues that may come out in the manure, whether they could also affect antimicrobial resistance of bacteria in aquatic systems as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing what Joe has to say about some of those potential contaminants that may arise from beef. So to give us the straight goods on residues in beef, our guest today is Dr. Joe Schwartz, Director of the Office of Science and Society at McGill University in Montreal. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Joe. Well, thanks very much. Can you tell us a bit about the Office for Science and Society at McGill? This sounds like its aims are a bit similar to those of our podcast. Well, it is actually a unique venture for a university uh, because our mandate here is to separate sense from nonsense and fact from (laughs) fiction, not only for our students, of course, but for the general public. And we do this on a number of platforms. I mean, obviously, these days we make use of the social media, also television programs. I write a weekly column in the Montreal Gazette, and I've had a long-standing radio show on science for 42 years, which now is beamed around the world, of course, on, on the Internet. And our office was actually established 22 years ago when the university said that there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there in the scientific realm that it behooves us as a public university to try to clarify some of these issues that people are concerned about. And of course, there are numerous issues that people are concerned about. So we deal with food, we deal with medications, we deal with cosmetics, we deal with the environment. And essentially what we do is try to interpret the peer-reviewed literature for the public and try to explain some of the mysteries that people find. And indeed, much of the science today is mystifying because, as we know, science is not white or black. It is many shades of gray. And it is often difficult to know exactly where on the spectrum an issue falls. And obviously, in this whole scheme, food plays a very important role because everyone eats, everyone is concerned about what they eat. I mean, when you think about how much of our life revolves around food, we think of what we're going to eat, then we go shopping, we plan the food, 
then we eat it, then we think about what we should have eaten instead of what we ate, and by that time, it's time to plan the next meal. So, you know, uh, food is very important, and and, uh, obviously there are so many questions that are raised about food, about the additives, about the chemicals that are used, the fertilizer, the pesticides, etc., And in your case, what you're interested in is animal agriculture and how some of these chemicals that are used can affect us. So these are fascinating issues. And generally, there are no simple answers. It's not yes or no's. It's many, many different shades, as I said, of gray. And of course, you have a diversity of opinions. You have the extremes. And then you have the truth somewhere in between, always closer to one side than the other. Tim likes to talk about the trade-offs with a lot of these things, and I think that sounds very similar to where you're coming from. I'll turn it over to Tim for the first tough questions. So, Joe, I've done some work on antimicrobial resistance, and we found bacteria that are antimicrobial resistance in cattle, humans, and the soil. You can find pretty well antimicrobial resistant bacteria just about anywhere. But I think there's some confusion, or at least we've felt there's some confusion between antimicrobial residues versus antimicrobial resistance. And residues, of course, are the antimicrobials that could end up in the meat or milk. When we have seen that, lots of times it's associated with countries or practices where they're not quite as highly regulated as they are in some of the developed countries. Is that the case or what do you think the risks are? I think that's well put. I mean, what I am fond of saying is that there are no good or bad chemicals. There are proper and improper ways to use them. And that applies to everything from antibiotics to food additives to all sorts of medications and cosmetics. Chemicals make no decisions. <laughs> you know, they don't have any life. They don't have brains. People make decisions. So it's a question of making the right decision. Now, you brought up the issue of residuals and resistance. And the two, of course, are not totally separate because one concern is that if we have traces of antibiotics left in the food that we eat, and if these find their way into our body, they can actually wipe out some of the so-called good bacteria, allowing the pathogenic bacteria to grow. I mean, that's a theoretical risk. I don't think it's very realistic. I think that the monitoring system for residues is very good. And of course, you cannot avoid all traces, but I think there's very little evidence that those residues will actually foster the growth of resistant bacteria. But that is the issue. It's not the toxicity of the residues. I mean, I I think that's a minor consideration. The major consideration is that those residues can foster the growth of resistant bacteria. But I don't think that there's much evidence for that. I think the bigger concern is the possible consumption of bacteria that have become resistant to antibiotics in the animal. If the animal has been treated with antibiotics for disease, it's inevitable that there will be some resistant bacteria that form because like humans, bacteria have different abilities to resist any kind of an attack. I mean, we know that if you take 100 people and you spray the cold virus into their nose, they will not all get the cold, right? We are biochemically individual. Similarly with bacteria. So some bacteria will resist the attack by the antibiotics, and they will then multiply and pass their genetic machinery to their offspring, and those then become resistant also. Now, if we eat the meat that has those resistant bacteria, 
it's possible, of course, that those bacteria will contaminate us and will grow inside of us. I mean, that's the consideration. How widespread this problem is, that is, is a widespread discussion. I think the important point to get across here is that we have to use antibiotics in a proper way. And farmers, of course, are very keen on using these substances in a proper way, first of all, because they are expensive. And no farmer has ever said to themselves, gee, you know, I don't think I've been spending enough money raising my animals. I I think I should go out and and buy some uh, chemicals or some antibiotics that are going to scare the public. Nobody thinks like that. You want to save money. So proper use. Now, what does that mean, proper use? I think there are cases where antibiotics are improperly used. And this, of course, is what we saw with the use of antibiotics to try to make animals put on weight more quickly. And that actually takes us back to the 1940s. Penicillin, of course, was introduced in 1928, but it didn't come into widespread use until the 1940s. It was really Florian Chain who did all the fundamental work that made it possible. And then, of course, the pharmaceutical companies jumped on the bandwagon. Everyone was trying to find novel antibiotics. And a soil sample from the University of Missouri was tested by Lederle Laboratories, and it contained the first tetracycline, chlortetracycline. And when they were testing that on animals, they discovered by chance that the animals put on weight. Now, this was a chance finding, but of course, they capitalized on that and started to market antibiotics to farmers to put on weight. And of course, the farmers were keen on this, because if you can bring your animal to full growth and slaughter earlier, of course, your profits are going to increase. And of course, at that time, back in the 1940s, Nobody was talking about antibiotic resistance. I mean, that concept wasn't even on the horizon. But by the early 2000s, of course, we became familiar with the problem because we were actually seeing antibiotic resistance. And in Europe, I think it was in 2006, they banned the addition of antibiotics to animal feed for purposes of weight gain. And it has subsequently been essentially eliminated here as well. And the other problem used to be just the addition of small amounts of antibiotics to feed prophylactically to make sure that animals are kept safe. That also is somewhat debatable. So I think these days the efforts are to use antibiotics only when animals get sick and to monitor the use. And, of course, there are all kinds of regulations about residues that are acceptable. So I think we've come a long way since what we would call the inappropriate use of antibiotics. Yeah, I can see that. And if we talk about the residues or the amount of concentration that people could potentially be exposed to, the the concentrations that we would get from a local prescription from our health professional would probably be much higher than what one would ever expect to encounter in any kind of meat or milk, I would think. Oh, I mean, there's no, no question about that. The issue would be exposure over a long period of time to small amounts. Yes. Yeah, good point. What I think we have to make clear is that there's no such thing as risk-free in life. It's always a question of weighing the risks against the benefits. And the proper use of antibiotics in animal agriculture, <laughs> without a doubt, the benefits outweigh the risks. But it has to be used in a judicious way, not callously and not frivolously. Okay, I'll move on to the next big residue of concern, and that would be hormones. 
Many cattle in feedlots are given anabolic steroid implants, which consistently increases their efficiency of growth. When the meat is tested, though, is it possible to detect which cattle were given hormonal implants compared to those which were not? Yeah, I don't think there's an easy determination for that because, of course, we produce hormones naturally. I mean, we produce progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. Uh, the trace amounts that are found in meat are so small compared to what we normally produce. It really isn't detectable. And, of course, there are numerous other foods that contain naturally occurring hormones or hormone-like compounds, the isoflavones and soybeans for a classic example. So the amount of hormone that would make it into our body from animals, I think, are just inconsequential. This is an area where the worries are not substantiated by the scientific evidence. And uh, one can also, of course, bring forth the argument that by using these small doses of hormones in the implants, the animals, of course, gain weight more quickly, they eat less, and this has an environmental impact. And animals that have hormone implants actually have a greener footprint, as it were, mm -hmm. because there are fewer chemicals that are needed to produce the food. They're eating less food, so you have to use less fertilizer, less pesticides, fewer trucks driving back and forth. So there is an environmental benefit. So I think the hormone scare has really been overblown because, uh, I mean, we are exposed to naturally occurring hormones all the time. But then why does the European Union ban the use of hormonal implants? They say it's out of an abundance of caution, but does that just mean they're maybe trying to have that as a non-tariff trade barrier to protect their own beef? Yeah. Food and politics make for strange bedfellows. Yeah, they make very messy bedfellows. Yeah, yeah they, they do. And so I think there is a lot of politicking involved here in terms of fostering your own type of agriculture. And I just have not come across any compelling scientific studies that show that there is a risk with trace amounts of hormones that are used in implants. People bring up all kinds of issues. Well, what if you end up eating the implant? I mean, that just doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> well, I, I know there's people that are buying cattle implants, like they're abusing steroids. So they're wanting the steroids to, you know, bulk up and lift weights or whatever. So, but that's not anything to do with health. You're not going to accidentally eat a cow ear. No, with no, no, you're not. So, Joe, another area I worked on a number of years ago was related to genetically modified feeds for cattle. We did a lot of work on genetically modified canola meal and compared that to conventional canola meal. And we couldn't really find any impacts of the transgenic feed on meat quality or growth of the animals. We even looked at where the transgene that codes for makes that genetically modified canola, what its fate was. And we found out that it was chopped up really fast by the bacteria within the digestive tract as well. So, but still, there are some Canadians who are concerned about GMOs. Can you comment on what the risks of GMOs might be in terms of residues in meat or other potential environmental consequences? I think zero is it's, it's, uh, <laughs> what we come up with. I mean, this is the GMO movement and scare is something that I've been following for 30 years. 
And certainly if I thought that there was a big risk here, I, I would be standing in some pulpit somewhere screaming about that because I think one of the real interesting features of our office is that we do not receive any funding from any sort of vested source. It makes no difference to me whether or not genetic modified crops are used or not. The only thing that matters to me and my staff is whether or not the decisions that are made are based upon peer-reviewed science and not on emotion. So that's where we come from. And we've been reviewing this, as I said, for three decades. And it's a tough battle because you have to give begrudging credit to the anti-GMO people. They're very good at what they do. They're very good at conjuring up scares, which have no no uh, scientific basis. The genetically modified canola is in no way chemically different from any other kind of canola. There's absolutely no reason to oppose that. You know, when you take a sample and you subject it to every laboratory test that you can and you don't find any difference, then there is no difference. So these arguments really are emotional. And my experience has been that when you get into discussions with most of the anti-GMO people, they really don't know what they're talking about. You ask them to define what genetic modification is, and they immediately get stuck. And they think that the large strawberries that we have in the supermarket are genetically modified. Well, of course, they're genetic modified by crossbreeding, conventional crossbreeding, but not by recombinant DNA technology. And most consumers don't realize that the recombinant DNA technology is very limited. It's used in canola, it's used in soy, it's used in some sugar beets, used in corn. But you see a large apple in the store and they think that this is somehow GMO modified. So there's just so much misinformation out there, particularly about glyphosate. Glyphosate has been the real whipping stock. Yeah, I think, like, I kind of get the impression that maybe the GMO movement has died down a little bit. You don't hear quite as much about it as we did five or ten years ago. Yet we really haven't seen any new plants with those types of traits being introduced on the market that I'm aware of or any significant expansion, although I'm pretty sure that the companies probably have quite a bank of material that could be considered for that purpose. Do you have any idea why we haven't seen more movement in that area? I think consumer acceptance is the issue because now there's not much question about the crops that are out there already. But if all of a sudden they start introducing something novel, that's going to get a lot of press once again. So I think that they consider that. Also, you have to consider which crops are worthwhile in terms of uh, using genetic modification. They've experimented with wheat. It didn't work out that well. And the corn and the soy, I mean, those are the major ones. And the canola, it works well. They're happy with that. The furor has died down. I think they don't want to stoke the fire. Although, certainly, genetic modified rice now is becoming more and more accepted. The golden rice, which was the first promise of a health benefit because of the vitamin A that increase in the developing world where there's terrible consequences of vitamin A deficiencies. And now that is becoming more and more accepted. So I think the next boost for genetic modified crops will be for the consumer. See, one of the big problems that we face in genetic modified crops is that the benefit has only been to the farmer. And the consumer doesn't see any direct benefit. 
you tell the person in the street that the farmer can grow canola easier and more profitably if it's genetic modified. They don't know what canola is. They don't know if you hunt it, fish it, or, or grow it. You know, <laughs> it's not part of their life. And you know whether or not that farmer benefits from it is not so relevant. So this has been one of the big problems historically with our battle against the anti-GMO people is that the consumer doesn't see any specific benefit for them. And that's why it's difficult to market it. But if we could say, listen, we can take that gene out of broccoli that codes for sulforaphane, which is an anti-cancer property, and we put that gene into a potato so that your french fries are healthier, which of course may or may not be true, but that would be marketable to the consumer because they perceive that there's some specific benefit to them. So it's all of these issues mixed up that have kind of slowed the GM movement. Well, I have to say that genetically modified crops are also banned by the European Union. <laughs> so I don't know if they just stoke the fires there a little bit more with the concern. It is totally political. Europeans are much more careful about what they put into their mouth. Food is more important in Europe than here. They're not satisfied with just going to some fast food restaurant and stuffing a hamburger and french fries into their mouth. You sit down to dinner or lunch in France or in Spain, it's a very different event. There's much more attention being paid on the quality of the food and where it came from, how it was grown. And they don't want their food mucked about with. That's basically what it comes down to, even though they don't quite understand that specific mucking about with GMOs really makes no difference whatsoever. It's a different attitude that Europeans have against food. They're just much less accepting of any kind of manipulation of the food supply. Joe, we seem to be hearing more and more about various residues that could be potentially a problem. And I'm just wondering, like, how much do you think that's due to the huge advancements that we've had in some of the detection methods? You know, we were detecting things that, you know, parts per million, parts per trillion, you, you know, those kinds of... I tell my analytical chemist colleagues that they are partly the root of the problem <laughs> because now they can detect parts per trillion. When you think about what that is, it's unbelievable. It's the width of a credit card compared to the distance between the Earth and the Moon. That is detectable. You know, I mean, this is just remarkable. And I always emphasize in all my public talks and my communications with people is that science revolves around numbers. And you have to understand what those numbers are. And a part per trillion is not the same as a part per billion. It's not the same as a part per million. You have to appreciate the difference between those numbers. And the idea, which of course was first introduced 500 years ago by Paracelsus, that it is only the dose that makes the poison. So you've always got to consider dosages and exposure. Because if you don't, you can make anything sound very scary. You can make an apple sound terrible because it contains acetone, it contains formaldehyde, it contains rubbing alcohol. It contains those, in fact, in higher concentrations than any pesticide residue. And we know that acetone can be toxic, right? But obviously, apples are non-toxic because the amount is just 
insignificant. But if you leave out the discussion of numbers, then of course it can become extremely scary. Now that being said, though, I think we also have to address the fact that while the dose is important, there are some substances where the toxic dose can be very, very small. I mean, we know, for example, that if you had a thimbleful of botulin, which is the toxin produced by the botulinum clostridium bacterium, a thimbleful of that would be enough to kill everyone in a major city. So these doses can be very, very small. And especially where we have to be careful is with substances that have endocrine-disrupting properties, uh, chemicals that can, in the body, act as hormones, either enhancing hormonal activity or blocking hormonal activity. And some of these chemicals, the classic ones, we, we talk about some of the phthalates, the bisphenol A, the perfluoroalkyl substances, I mean, some of these can have hormonal activity in very, very small doses. So again, it's not a question of yes or no. It's a question of where on the spectrum of toxicity these substances fall. But we cannot dismiss the possibility of something doing harm just because the dose is extremely small. You have to take a look at what that substance is and how much we know. But for beef, then, as long as we don't eat the plastic packaging and just stick to the beef, we're probably okay there for some of these really toxic things. I think so. And one of the things about beef, and there's a lot of beef about beef, right? When you take a look at that, all the stuff that is available on the internet. And obviously, there are some legitimate questions about animal agriculture and about eating meat. There's a great deal of research about the benefits and the detriments of a meat-based diet. There are the two extremes. You look at people like Jordan Peterson, who promotes the carnivore diet and doesn't do anything except eat meat. And then, of course, you have the other extreme of the vegans, who will stay away from anything. And you can find studies to back up either one of those views. And this is one of the big problems that we have today, is that there's so much stuff published of all kinds of qualities. It's not so difficult to get something published in the, quote, peer-reviewed literature, because there are a lot of peer-reviewed journals, which are junk journals. These are the pay-for-play journals, as we like to call them. So just because something is in a peer-reviewed journal doesn't mean that it's set in stone, by all means. So you can dredge up studies to prove almost any point that you want to that's why we emphasize looking at meta-analyses, looking at studies of studies, looking to see where the scientific consensus is. So where is the scientific consensus with meat these days? Is that it is probably not a good idea to have red meat with every meal that you have. It's a question of balance. So the issues with beef are much more in the line of nutrition than in toxicity in terms of antibiotic residues or hormonal residues is a question of the amount of meat that we should be eating in an optimal diet. Well, thank you, Joe. You've been a super guest and answered all of our residue questions very succinctly. Tim, we've heard that while hormones or drug residues may be detectable in beef, they are below concentrations of any human health concern, although there seems to be a disconnect between science and regulation, maybe in the case of the EU sometimes. What would be your take-home points from what Joe had to say? 
Yeah, okay, well, I think Joe made some really good points. I think probably the most important point that he made is with regard to letting science drive your decisions versus emotion. He, he emphasized that in many cases, some of those people that have more of the extreme views are really basing those views based on their emotions as opposed to the science that may support their point of view. I was interested in his comment on peer review papers. I really agree with him a lot about that. In fact, I have quite a huge concern over that because of the charging that's going on now to publish in a peer-reviewed journal. And I agree with him wholeheartedly that you can find papers that represent both sides of the story and, and the need to then sort of synthesize the scientific literature reading one paper is not enough to come to a conclusion. You need to put more effort into it and get a broader perspective to come through a conclusion. And I think in in many cases, that conclusion is going to be somewhere in the middle. Joe talked about, we don't want to eat red meat every single day. Well, that gets back to some of the people we've interviewed talking about the need to have a balanced diet and that we need to look at what nutrients we require and make sure that we're eating a variety of foods that will meet those nutrient needs. So I think there's a lot of commonality between what Joe said and some of the other podcasts that we've done as well. So thank you also to our listeners. If you are enjoying the podcasts, please share them with your friends who also may be interested. We're always happy to take suggestions for future podcasts or revisit topics from old episodes if there is something we have missed. You can send us some feedback on our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram at Cows on the Planet or Twitter at Planet underscore Cows. Our next podcast will feature Dr. Sarah Kopetek of UC Davis discussing is grass-fed beef better for human health and the environment? We need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and theme music developer and MVP on the podcast team. Uvi Abiscaria is our guy who gets the podcast released. And Christy Thomas is our social media guru influencer. Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We're just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing. Mm-hmm.